0: Welcome to Friends of Foster Care, a podcast sponsored by Fostering Hope Catawba Valley. Leanne Setlith, a foster mom and adoptive parent, along with Megan Burns, a licensed social worker foster mom, and adoptive parent are on this journey to tell us and center the stories of those around us who are seeking out fostering and adoption. For all of us to have a better understanding of the opportunities, the challenges, the joys, and the triumphs, the gifts, and the pitfalls afforded to us in these systems. Together they make up the Friends of Foster Care.
1: to this episode of Friends of Foster Care Podcast. We are excited to be in Social Worker Appreciation Month this March of 2022. And we are really excited to have um, a social worker with us, Molly Bowman. Molly, thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Um, We have had social workers on the podcast before, um, but Molly brings a different um, side of social work to the table because she is a um, CPS or Child Protective Services social worker. And so this is a a different segment of um, foster care and Department of Social Services that we haven't really heard from. So we're excited to hear your story, Molly. Um, And um, if you want to take a minute to introduce yourself
2: and there. um so um like you said my name is molly bowman i um and my social work, I've been in child welfare is actually the only type of social work that I have ever done, um, even going back as far to internships. So I've been um, in some capacity, whether that was investigations, assessments. I also worked for a period of time in foster care and adoptions, um, but for a total of about nine years now. Um, Three of that was in foster care and adoptions, and then a majority of that um, has been in CPS investigations. Um, I currently supervise um, one of the investigative teams at Catawba County, um, and we are one of the forensic teams. So uh, my team, we focus in specialized training for um, abuse, um, sexual abuse, physical abuse, and fatality cases in the county.
0: Molly so tell us kind of your journey to get into social work to begin with um so to begin
2: with when I first went away to college i did not really know what I wanted to do um I majored in psychology just because you had to have a major um, and just kind of um, went Just to see where it would go. Um, My grandma was really influential in me becoming a social worker. Um, She was a nurse in the health department back home, um, but did a lot more social work type of things. So she worked with um, newborn babies and their mothers. Most of the population she worked with were um, infants who were substance affected at the time of birth, um, and as well as um, children with fetal alcohol syndrome. And she followed them probably relatable. It would be somewhat similar to CC4C now, but a little bit more, um, case management aspect in that. And I just, I always was very interested in that. Um, and then the summer after I graduated from high school, my church back home had the opportunity to go on a mission trip to Michigan to what's called champions for life kids camp. And it's similar in North Carolina to Royal family. What is it? Royal family kids camp. That may be what it's called. Um, and it is a summer camp that the local DCF offices up there, the social workers refer their kids who are in care or who had been adopted to, and they get to go to sleepaway camp. And um, it is just a setting that can be a little bit easier for kids who have been through trauma. Um, you have a one-on-one buddy. Um, so you do have that little, bit more hands-on attention everything is really at the kids pace and it focuses on healing from the trauma the kids have experienced in all of the activities everything they do is really focused on that aspect of it so I got the opportunity that summer to be a camper buddy and um kind of got introduced to the foster care system then and went back the year after that and after my second year going um decided to add a second major for social work and found out about the child welfare collaborative and joined that. And I guess I've just never gone back.
1: (laughs) So you, you said in your introduction that you started um, in foster care and adoptions, and then you moved to the CPS world. So what, what made you move from um, one to the other? And Before you answer that question, let me just take a minute to explain. So a little bit of the process, at least at Catawba County DSS um, is, and all DSS's, is that um, Child Protective Services will get a call, and you'll explain this a little bit more in a little bit, um, but about a child who's might not be in a safe place. And so y'all will go out and investigate. Um, and then once they come into care, they're in foster care, um, which is they're working for reunification. So that's kind of the CPS is kind of the front foster care is kind of the middle. And then if reunification is not possible for the safety of the child, then they move to adoptions, which is kind of the end. And so you're more at the, you were in the kind of the middle of the end of the process and now you're at the beginning. So what, what made you want to switch to that side?
2: yeah so i whenever i did internships in undergrad and grad school the two counties i was i was in jackson and wake county and they gave me a very um broad experience so i was actually able to work cases in all aspects so i did some intake in cps i did investigations in home and um, foster care in all of those settings so when i first got hired on and was applying for jobs I really wanted foster care, but I mean, I had just graduated from grad school. My husband was still in grad school. Like I just needed a job. Um, And so I applied for a bunch. And so my my first actually paying job in Wake County was in investigations and assessments. Um, And then when we relocated to Catawba County is when I moved to foster care because that was what I really had a passion for and felt like I really wanted to do. Through the course of that, I ended up having more of like kind of a hybrid caseload where I had half of my caseload was foster care, half of it was adoptions. And um, I, I had a few interns during that time and just learned that I really liked to show somebody new how to do the job and see somebody with that passion and try to help foster that to make them successful. And Um, really the opportunity just came up in the agency at Catawba County, a supervisor position posted, um, but it was in CPS. And so it was a very, very difficult decision for me, um, because I do really have a passion for foster care and adoptions, but I felt like that was the right move at that time for me and my family. And so applied and never in a million years did I think I would get the position, but I did. (laughs) And so have just stayed um, in
0: that position since then. So can you talk us through um, Child Protective Services? Like, What does that look like from start to finish? I mean, I know that there's so many variables, but can you just give us um, in a vacuum kind of an overview of CPS?
2: Yeah, so initially, in order for CPS to get involved, we have to have somebody makes a report. So you can come in in person, you can do it on the phone by calling. We've gotten letters, emails. So that report is in there just Uh in case.
1: Let me, to make a report, um, I have had a lot of people ask me how to make a report. Hmm. It is anonymous. And so I think a lot of people are worried like, if I report, if I have a concern and I report, then somebody's going to know, but there is a way to do it, make an anonymous report,
2: right? Um, Yes, you can. So um, anytime, if somebody makes a report, like if you're on the phone, the intake worker will always ask if you are willing to give your name and contact information. And that is completely up to you, you know, as an individual, if you want to provide that or not um but yeah and even if you do provide that information um we are not allowed to disclose who that information is um to anybody we cannot now sometimes people can figure out like if there was only one person present you know and somebody may say well I know you did it but I mean we are not allowed to say that
1: and somebody would make a report for what reasons
2: Um, So, in general, it would be because they have concerns of the safety of a child, of some kind of safety concern. Okay. So, keep going. Yeah. So, no, that's fine. So, when we get an intake report, um, then both the intake social worker and supervisor, so two people are required to look at that information and determine if that meets um, North Carolina statute to screen in. And if it does, then it is assigned um, to a CPS assessment investigations worker. Um, And then from there, their job is to meet with the family, interview the family, interview, um, collaterals, which would be like a reference that the family provides, um, gather any kind of records, if that may be applicable, like if it was something related to medical care, they might get medical records or law enforcement reports, if it had anything to do with that. Um, and then, At the end of that time, the worker and the supervisor will make a decision as far as the outcome of the case. So whether or not there was enough information to prove abuse, neglect, or dependency or not.
1: So children come into foster care for those three reasons, for physical or sexual abuse, neglect, and then dependency. Tell a little bit dependency is one that i'm usually confused about so tell what a little bit what dependency is
2: yeah so dependency and the, the best way that i can explain it is kind of explain like all of them so abuse would be something like an intentional act on a child neglect would be something not intentional but they don't get cared for like such a substance use you're not intentionally not feeding your child but it could be that a parent or caretaker is using and so they're not meeting those needs dependency would be that a parent is not physically capable of caring for the child or not willing to make a plan for them to care for a child. So, for example, like say the parents have left a child with grandma and grandma does not have custody. She does not have power of attorney. um, She does not have any authority over these children and they have you know, outstanding medical needs. She can't enroll them in school, and she can't get a hold of the parent. That would cause a dependency issue because the kids have needs that the the whoever they're with cannot meet. So
0: you get the CPS report. You go through that assessment process. Um, we, I think, we all understand what it means if you close the case that you didn't find anything. You close it, but there are different outcomes and different ways a case could go if you did find things. So kind of tell us what happens if if there is something to the report.
2: Yeah, so if there is something to the report, um, if, you, if there, it is a case for um, neglect or dependency, so it's screened in as a family assessment track, um, a case decision can be made of what's called services needed, meaning that there was evidence of, in that type of case, neglect or dependency. Um, and at that point, the case, either one would have a petition filed and um, you know move to foster care at that point or does not have a petition filed and moves to what's called family in-home, um, which is another social worker that meets with the family for a longer period of time than an assessment social worker does. Um, and their ultimate goal is to prevent the kids from entering foster care. Cases that go to in-home are cases that could go to foster care, you know, there is enough factual evidence there, but the agency is really trying to work to prevent that from happening. Um, and that would be the same as far as if a case is substantiated, if it is an abuse case or a serious neglect case, substantiated, it would either go to foster care or family in home at that point. Um, there are times in investigative assessments where we will do a substantiate and close and so that's kind of a, a tricky one thrown in there but essentially what that would be would be like if there was enough evidence that abuse or serious neglect occurred but maybe there's like a protective parent like maybe a parent who lives in a different home, you know, stepped up and made a plan for their child not to go back to the other situation, and we're comfortable with that parent's protective capacity, and so um, we substantiate because we know something did happen, but close it with that parent being the protective factor.
1: Um. And we'll, we'll talk about misconceptions of CPS in just a minute, but um, I think one of the misconceptions of CPS is that if if CPS is called, they're automatically going to come and take your kit, your kid. Right. Um, And so what you are describing is a longer process, but there are times that you come in and you take a child immediately. Um, Can you describe the difference between those two scenarios?
2: Yeah. So, A situation, I'm trying to think. So the initial contact that we have with a family um, is called an initiation. So, you know, there are times where we may have to file a petition and ask for non-secure custody at initiation. Um, That is not the majority of cases. So where that would come up would be if we go out and there is Factual evidence of abuse, neglect, or dependency, our very next step of what we are we're required to do, we are mandated by the state of North Carolina um, as well as county policy, is we have to work with the parents for them to come up with a plan for their children. So if we determine it's not safe enough, we have to show what's called diligent efforts um for to come up with a plan can the kids go to grandma can they go to an aunt or a neighbor or what other protective factors can we put in place so we don't have to file um and that is actually a pretty extensive process that we have to show that we have really gone through before a judge will even sign off on um us having custody of the kids. Yeah, so if it, and and that, I think you kind of, it would be if there was something in the moment, like an absolute immediate safety concern, and there was no other arrangement that we could put in place to keep the kids safe, you know, for any period of time, um, then that's when we would go ahead and file.
0: Molly, and you may not have the answer to this, um, but do you have any uh, statistics, like how, what's the percentage of reports of all the ones you get and then how many actually go to foster care
2: um so our program manager normally keeps that i just got though because she sends out once a month i may have that that i can try to pull um as far as what our trend data we do keep track of that let me see
0: um i just feel like people would be interested in that because i think people assume a lot more kids go into foster care than than actually do.
2: Yeah so and I can tell you so one thing to keep in mind too is that um, reports ebb and flow one dependent on the county so Catawba County is a bigger county than like um, maybe Alexander County so Catawba County just by default of having more people living in it will have more reports Um, as well as different times of year will make reports ebb and flow summertime when kids tend to be at home and there aren't as many adults or mandated reporters around them. We don't get as many right after kids come back um, to school. We get an influx in them because kids talk about everything that they that happened over the summer. Um,
1: Probably David had a lot to do with that, too, of like you had kids not have, you know, like around other adults. And so you probably saw a dip a little bit in reports as well.
2: We actually saw a big dip in reports um, and still like we are still recovering from that. I can see as far as February of 2022 went, um, we had a total of 223 reports made. So that's just that was made. That's not necessarily what is screened in or screened out. Um, so and let me
1: and a report can be made 24/7 there's always an on call number um and it can be made in the middle of the night it can be made you know on a saturday there's always somebody there um if somebody's concerned about a child's safety
2: yes we never close we alternate working on call um so there will always be somebody um i don't know that i have I don't think that I have anything that talks about like every month how many kids enter care. Um, I have it somewhere. I just cannot easily. I'm pretty
0: sure in stuff. February we only had one, one child enter foster care. Okay. I, I could be wrong, but I, I, usually, I keep track of that stuff on our end and pretty sure it was one child in February.
1: Well, and that's, so that's another kind of misconception too. We'll talk about dive into more misconceptions in a minute. Um, maybe that'll be the next thing we talk about. But one of them is that if CPS, again, I said, if CPS comes to your house, they're taking your child. Well, really what you just explained is we, you don't want to take their children. You want to help put in place things like um potentially like daycare, if that's available, or um, figure out how to, I know Fostering Hope is able to to provide some bedding so that kids can stay in their home, or um, maybe Medicaid and, and health care kind of concerns. And so really, the whole goal of foster care is to keep families together, not tear them apart and throw them into adoption. But that's kind of the misconception of CPS. So what other misconceptions, um, have you run into about, uh, child protective services?
2: So piggybacking off of that, I think a big misconception is that it's very easy to put a kid in foster care or sibling group in foster care. Um, and that's actually a huge misconception. It is, Very, very hard. Like I talked about earlier, the diligent efforts that we are required to make. So such as, I mean, me and my workers, like there are times like you have to try to find another parent. So say mom or dad is not in the picture. I mean that, and it's not just as simple as picking up the phone. Oh, I called one number. I mean, it's looking through our background checks, finding various addresses, literally spending an entire workday of driving around the county to various houses, asking for somebody, showing them a picture if they know this person, getting another lead from them saying, oh, they may be at this location, so going there, um, finding court dates to go to to try to locate people, um, as well as relatives, doing all of those things for relatives as well to see if the family first would be willing for their child or children to go to a relative or like a fictive kin, like a close neighbor or, you know, close friend like that. Um, It it is a a lot of work to do that. I think also uh, a lot of times there's a misconception that as far as the CPS realm of things that we don't want to help families, we don't want them to succeed. Um, And I mean, I think encountering somebody like that is probably not very common. Um, I mean, our whole premise in CPS is to work with the family and get them to a safer place so that we don't have to go to family in-home or so that we don't have to file a petition. So anything that we can do to help make your family safer or, you know, make better choices, that's what we want to do.
0: Um, before we jump, I want to, I definitely want to talk about how this job impacts you. But one other question I thought might be helpful for people, you, the phrase mandated reporters earlier, so can you just give general advice to people in the community um, if they have concerns about a child, about making a report, and what it means to be a mandated reporter in North Carolina?
2: Yeah, so every state um, in, in our country has Has differences in what they consider to be a mandated reporter. So, in the state of North Carolina, if you are a North Carolina citizen, you are considered a mandated reporter. So, it does not matter what your job is, what your affiliation with a child is. If you live here, you're a mandated reporter. Um, In addition to that, there are a lot of job titles or professions that also are considered mandated reporter as far as your work so you could potentially be held liable through your work so um obviously working in child welfare or social worker foster parent you know you are that would all be mandated reporters school personnel medical personnel um, daycare providers those would all be mandated reporters professionally as well um So, you know, as far as concerns, I know a lot of people have concerns about making a report, you know, sometimes they think, well, this has been going on for a long time, somebody must have also already said something, or I know I saw a social worker come out to the school several months ago, so they must already know, um, what I go by is if I have not told that information to an intake social worker do not ever 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 assume that it has been reported. Um, There are many times when people think that and we will go and end up interviewing them and find out that they knew this information weeks months even years sometimes before it went on and they never said anything and so the kid remained in that situation. Um, there are ways, you know, like we talked about earlier, you, if you don't want to provide your name, if you don't want to provide your phone number or your address, you don't have to. Um, I always recommend doing that. I just like to, to go from a policy of transparency, just like any family I work with. Whether that was when I was a foster care worker, if I had to make a new report or in CPS, I'm going to tell you, even personally, if I have had to make one, I'm going to tell you because child protection is a community effort and truly, you know, fostering hope to top of the motto is it takes a village. It takes a village to keep our kids safe. And so if we can all work together and if I can go to my neighbor and say, Sally, look, I am really concerned because I am seeing X, Y, and Z. I am required to report this, but I'm going to be here for you. And we're going to work through this and figure out what we can do so that I can help you keep your kids with you. Um, I always recommend that because I think it just shows a level of transparency for families. Families will trust you more in the long run and feel like you really are there for them and their kids.
1: Yeah. So when you say the word mandated, it means required, right? Like you are a required reporter. And I will say as a community member who um, lives a little bit in the world of foster care, lots of people will come to me and say, hey, I have this. Thing, how do I make a report? And so it is really easy. It's listed on the Catawba County website. It tells you exactly what to have. And so I always say to them, I can't make the report for you because I'm not the person who has seen exactly what's going on. But these are the things that we need to collect child's name, address, phone number, parent's name, whatever. Let's write it down on a sticky you note, know, and I will sit in the room with you while you make the report, but I can't be the one to make a report because I'm not the one who has actually witnessed what's going on, um, and I, I have, have done that quite a few times of, of that, um, so I, yeah, it can be scary, but it's totally, it, it, it's, we're, we're required to do it. It's for the safety mm-hmm. of a child.
2: So and I think it's important to know too and this is not the case I don't I don't say this as in this has not happened a lot, but because the state of North Carolina, everybody is a a mandated reporter. There are laws that obviously would be outside of DSS. So that would be in the criminal world where you can be charged for failure to report. Um, So the only times I have seen that have been like in like serious physical abuse or sexual abuse cases, but I have seen where people have known that information and not shared it for a significant period of time. And more and more things have happened to the kids. And and, you know because you're not stepping up as the adult to keep that kid safe law enforcement does have that option
0: all right molly so we're going to kind of shift gears a little bit we want to talk about um you know this is special worker appreciation Month, and you do a very tough job in our community so we're going to talk about you know your rewards from this job and how this job impacts you and how you keep going so Tell us a little bit about, let's jump in to talk about secondhand trauma. Tell us about secondhand trauma um, and how that impacts you as a worker. So secondary, secondary
2: trauma, secondary traumatic stress, whatever you want to call it, um, would be when, like us as a professional, really in any profession, you start to have stress based on the things that you see in hear. um and it starts to be traumatic for you because of the reoccurring nature of which you are experiencing other people's trauma. Um, so in, the CPS world, I'll specifically just talk about um, like investigations, assessments and in-home. It, I mean, it is a very real, real thing, um, just like in foster care and adoption where social workers, foster parents, kinship providers could feel that, um, by dealing and helping with the kids that they are serving, um, deal with their stress. It's a little bit different from CPS. It's more so, you know, the things we see on a firsthand basis. And so specifically like the team that I see going into the hospital and seeing, you know, some of the more severe cases of abuse firsthand, um, you know, we're required to photograph that then once that's photographed we then have to upload those pictures to our documentation system and then we have to look at them again to prepare for court and then in court and so there's a lot of layers to that um and a lot of things that you know you're continuing to be exposed to that um I, I when I first started in CPS um in the county I was in secondary traumatic stress was not talked about Um, That very much was not talked about one bit. um, And I did not know what that was. All I knew was I, you know, I had just graduated college. I had this job. I was you know, I was going to help all these people, um, and did not realize, you know, what that toll can take on you. Um, and so what helped at that time, what helped me get through it is I just had a really good friend set at work of, of other peers, um, who may not necessarily have been on my team, but were with the agency and we just had a stand. There was, I don't know, there was probably close to 15 of us and, um, cause it was a big County just had a standing lunch date every day. And it was one of those things that somebody would just start the, the group text, of. Uh, you know, this is going to be the time, this is going to be the place today. If you can come, come, if not try another day during the week. Um, and so, I mean, it definitely wasn't something that you could do every day, but you knew there would be at least one person from that group of people there one day a week, if you went, um, sometimes more than that. And so we just really use those lunches really truly were very therapeutic where if we needed to, you know, vent about something that happened, about something that we had seen, um, just talk through something of how to deal with it. They were there for that. And it was outside of like direct supervision. And so it felt easier to talk about if that makes sense. Um, like I said, the agency I was at didn't talk about secondary traumatic stress. So for me, the thought of going to my supervisor at that time was like admitting failure that I could not do this job. Um, On the flip side, you know, Catawba County is very opposite of that. You know, we talk about that in CPS probably on a new worker's very first day. Um, We have training about it. We have, you know, regular activities we do as an agency to help with that, um, As a supervisor, um, especially after what I have gone through, when my workers get some of the more difficult cases to work, before my worker even gets out there, we sit down and have a conversation of, you know, this is our game plan of what we're going to do to gather this information today, but this is what we're going to do for us to deal with it um, and still have that I mean, ongoing. I have a worker right now. I've been, we've been talking about something like that for a case. And truly it's just a matter of, and it goes both ways. Like I will just call her and say, Hey, I was having review stuff for this case. And it was hard for me. Can you talk to me right now? And, you know, she'll do the same thing. Um, And so really having that bond with those people you work with, I think really helps with that.
1: Well, especially too, because that's, there's, Confidentiality within the department, so it's not like you have somebody outside of the department who doesn't who doesn't need to know all of the confidentiality pieces that are going on with a case and a family. But as workers, you work together, and so you're able to to have that um, that relationship with each other.
2: Yeah and we I think the confidentiality is a, a good thing to bring up. We we do have obviously we have to be careful, you know, we don't want to just tell anybody and everybody, but the agency has also been very good. We have some therapists at FamilyNet who have been willing to meet with staff if they need it. Obviously we can't talk about you know, so-and-so's name, you know, very detailed specifics, but we can talk in general um, with that. And so that's helpful as well. If we feel like we need a completely like neutral person um, and if we don't want to go into those details of things.
0: So how has, how has this job and the things you've seen and dealt with, how has this impacted you personally in your own parenting journey?
2: Yeah. (laughs) So I, um, I have two small kids. I'm a mom of a five-year-old and two-year-old. Um, I I think this job greatly impacts all aspects of parenting. Um, I know, so my children are biological children. Um, my husband and I have talked about fostering. We're not at that place right now, but are hoping that someday we will be. Um, When we first decided we wanted to start our family, like biologically, we had some issues with infertility. And so at that time I was a foster care worker and it was really hard dealing with infertility and going to work every day. And working with situations where you see, you know, parents maybe not in the best place or not making the best choices and having a lot of children or you know, whatever that situation is. and I mean, that sucks. <laughs> that sucks every single day seeing that. Um, we had actually made the decision that we were getting ready to go to an info session at a nearby county. And just a couple weeks later, I found out that I was pregnant with our first daughter. Um, and so that did change things. I think as far as, you know, once she, when I was pregnant, I was super anxious about, you know, everything that could go wrong, everything that went into my body, like, what is this going to do? But then I think also on the flip side for both of my kids. And I think even, you know, with other relatives that have small children, I have seen what could happen. And so I know I probably am much more overprotective than what other people may be just because I have seen things, um, I don't, I think it's impacted me. I don't let very many people watch my kids just because I am very concerned about, you know, the what ifs. Um, It's impacted my parenting style in the sense of things that were different for me um, growing up, just such as discipline, even just the way I talk with my kids. Um, You know, growing up, we didn't really talk about our bodies a whole lot. You know, didn't we had other words for body parts. Um, but I have seen where that can be dangerous at times for kids, if they don't know what to call their body part and something has happened to it. And so, you know, as early as my kids can talk and, you know, playing, you know, if they're saying, what's this, what's that? I mean, we call body parts, what they are, doesn't matter what it is. That's what we call it. Um, we don't keep secrets, which is very different than a lot of families. Um, and it has required not just parenting for our kids, but it has required us to also do a lot of education for our family and people that are around our kids, because a lot of people don't get that. Um, you know, same thing as when our kids are like potty training, oh, I'll go help them no, like I will do it. I I don't want all of these people in the bathroom with my kids. Um, you know, I want them saying these words and that words, I don't want you to tell my kids secrets. That's not okay. They, they will tell me they know to do that. Um, so I think it's just very different than what you would think parenting would be prior to being in this job. Do you find that you're able to compartmentalize
1: when you go out to a a hard case? Like, okay, this is not me as a parent. This is me as a social worker or have you experienced the, the emotions
2: of them kind of bleeding together at times? I think it depends on the day. Um, I've gotten to the point where I very much have learned to compartmentalize my personal life, my personal beliefs, and being a parent from the job, because that's the only way to get through it. I, maybe other, other people may, may not have to do that. I know that I have to, um, but I think, I think our issues when we had them with infertility, I think that helped a lot of times in being able to talk with families, but I think as well as now having children, and I think, you know, regardless of if they would be biological, you know, adopted anything, I think it just helps having any experience with kids because you can talk about, Hey, I had a kid who had colic for, I don't know, however many months, like I can see how that would be frustrating. We need to. Do, what can we do else other than you know whatever it is that's happening? You know, I've been there and I've been without having that sleep. Like I could see how things happen, um, and so it, it helps me. I think relate more, maybe.
1: Yeah, so it helps to relate to the the families that you're working with. Uh, mm-hmm.
2: This is hard. I mean, parenting is the
1: hardest thing I've ever done, um, and. Before parenting, I thought very black and white about people who were not able to care for their child children. But um, I can kind of, like you said, relate. It, it is hard. It, there is it is hard work. Um, so,
2: yeah. And I think to this job, as far as impacting my parenting, I think it has made me far more grateful for my children. I know that sounds funny, but grateful for my children for the time that I get to spend with them even if it is even if it's just you know at the end of the day 10 minutes watching tv with them for a number of reasons one because I can I have seen what could happen in the blink of an eye to a kid but also having that experience of knowing that not all parents get to do that Um, and so I do feel a lot more grateful for that
0: yeah That's great. So in the midst of all the hard work that you guys do, what fuels you to keep going in your work?
2: Um, For me, it's more of like the individual stories and individual experiences I've had with clients along the way. Um, Like I will remember the first trial home placement and, um, you know, return of custody to a birth parent. And just how thankful that parent was for working with them um that feeling is great um i remember one of the more i would say probably more traumatic for me removals that i did when i was in a different county um it was a sibling group of three and one of those kids when we got back to dss and he was a teenage boy he was a 14 year old boy and so you can imagine i mean you know, he didn't want to talk a whole lot. Um, and at that time, gosh, I probably was 22, 23, maybe. Um, and I went to the back of my car to get the stuff out of the car. And I turned around and he was right there and gave me a hug and squeezed me harder than I probably had ever been squeezed and just said, Thank you for taking me somewhere else. Um, I, I had a mom one time, I was her foster care worker, um, and it things were not going towards reunification. And then I ended, when I switched positions, I had to go back and actually testify at a hearing. And even though it was a hearing that she didn't want at the end of my testimony, when we were on break, that mom hugged me. Um, and just said, thank you for at least giving her a chance. So it's little things like that along the way where you feel like, okay, maybe I am making a difference today. Like it doesn't feel like that every day, but maybe today I am. <laughs> All right. Um,
1: Recently, went over my um, adopted son's birth records, um, and my um, two of my children were pulled from the hospital. And so, this this particular son um, spent some time in the hospital um, detoxing from substances. And I read through his birth records. Somebody asked me a question about him, and so I like tried to remember it. And there are two women who are listed on his birth records. They're not me. One of them's not me. One of them is his birth mom, and one of them is a specific is a CPS worker. Um, and at that time and, and place, his bio parents were not able to keep him safe. And so I just think about the role that she, the CPS worker who's written on his birth records, played for the you know for the safety of who is now my son and what that looks like. And so I have deep gratitude for that. And I actually took just a few minutes to email her and say, hey, thank you. And here's an updated picture. Um, And so she was very excited to get that picture because she said she doesn't often get to see past, you know, that initial report. And so, like, I can I can imagine that the moments that you get to see the. Children moving to health, whether whether that's just a small glimpse of a hug or in foster care, is what continues like helps you fuel to keep going, um, knowing that that's and knowing as a supervisor that you are impacting more people who are then able to help keep kids
2: safe. Mm-hmm. And follow up like what what you just said, how you did to social workers, that is something that means a lot. I know there have been resource parents that have done that for me that have meant a lot. Um, I actually was in a meeting um, last week with that social worker you're talking about, and she mentioned it because of how impactful that was and how grateful she was for that. Um, And so that really helped her um, big time. And so she really appreciated that. Oh, okay
1: yeah I, I i was struck i think to think about her role in my child's life um and just what a powerful for him again we we want we want family reunification right like that's the goal and in in places where that's not but we want child safety first and so in that situation she was what made sure that my son had safety so oh so yeah
0: all right well as we wrap up let's i'm sure you have lots of stories and things that we could talk about but um leanne had a great idea to ask workers because most social workers will have a funny animal story so do you have a funny animal story molly i, I have several that i probably could tell um One, one
2: that I think is probably one that I remember the most. So when, when I was trained in investigations, that was in downtown Raleigh. So, you know, a much more um, city like environment, you know, like it's like downtown area, there's not like farm animals and fields and stuff like that. So when I started doing CPS, in Catawba County, like that's very different. You know, obviously we have some areas of Hickory that are as like, um, urban farmland. There we go. Urban. That's it. You know? Um, but I will never forget. So in CPS, when we have a new worker, the workers first six cases, the supervisor goes out with you. And so the first three, the supervisor actually works the case and the new social worker watches. And then you switch just so that they can get experience that way. It was, one of my very first um, workers that I ever had first case and we went out and I don't even, I don't remember where it was. It was somewhere out in the middle of nowhere. Um, And they had, like they lived on a farm. Like it was this huge farm. I'm not used to that. I grew up in the city, you know, and then my experiences in the city and um, we were on the porch trying to get somebody to come to the door and had to knock for a good while. And they had chickens and cows that were not fenced in who proceeded to come up onto the porch with us. And I had never experienced that before. And so was trying to tell my worker in as calm of a way possible, get back to the car, get to the car now. Um, And she did not fully understand that. And so I just ended up going to the car and eventually she realized and followed me. Um, But we were getting somewhat cornered by these chickens and cows. (laughs) On the front porch. On the front porch of this house. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny.
1: Um, Well, anything else that you want to add for our conversation? It's been a great conversation um, just to learn more about uh, your world and the child protective service world.
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, just the biggest thing, and we talked about it earlier, is just, again, child protection really is a community effort. So regardless, you know, of what program area is in place, CPS all the way to adoptions. And so I just really encourage anybody out there can really make a difference in that. That could be as simple as making a report if you see something or, you know, even if you are interested in becoming a resource parent, you know, in some fashion, there's a lot of different things that you can do. And I think, something that I have learned through this job and through talking with both Megan and Leanne, you know, even if you have goals of one day wanting to become a foster parent or adoptive parent, if that's not where you're at in that moment, there are so many other things that you can do. Um, it just really takes us as adults stepping up to be those big people for the little people who can't, um, and just need us and depend on us.
1: Yeah. I couldn't have said it better. Thank you. Um, and let's end on a funny. And we already had our animal story, but do you have another funny or uplifting story that we can end our time on?
2: Um, I think yeah, more so uplifting. Um, you know, we talked about finding, um, sharing with workers that you know had been involved with kids, and I have, um, I had a kid when I was in foster care who was on my caseload. I probably worked with that. Um, family for about a year they ended up adopting him um and that um mom the adoptive mom um will just text me from time to time and send me um Uh, not just pictures, but videos, Um, this, the child had some medical needs. And so he has um, overcome a lot. And so like, I remember seeing a video she sent uh, like of him walking and of him finally eating and different things like that. And just how impactful that is um, and how meaningful that is for me. Um, And so I just, I appreciate that. And, you know, thank that family for continuing to send that to me.
1: So there's a a movie that came out a few years ago called instant family. And it's about um, it's about a foster family who gets a, you know, three kids. And so on one hand, if you're, if you're not a foster parent or social worker in the foster care, like you think the title is about like them getting these three kids. Right. But the last scene is this scene of their adoption. And they say, everybody get in the picture. And so you have this whole community get in this picture, social workers, judges, um, foster parents, or, and, you know, friends who are foster parents, all in this huge, you know, this huge picture of, of people, like probably 30 people. It. And that moment struck me because um, as a foster parent, like I know, yes, these children have now become a part of my family. But so have all of these other people, these social workers and these um, foster parent friends and the judge, people who like come alongside in this journey um, are now family because they wa- walk with us in hard places. Just like I talked about the social worker who's was on my, my child's birth records. And like you talked about, like, you were helping that family and walking with them in some hard places in their lives and because of of those places those sacred places in our lives you now become family and so I love that image because it's not just the children who now become part of your family it's people who've walked alongside you in this journey to safety and security for kids um so um Molly we deeply are appreciative of all that you do for this community um, and the hard work that you put in and the sacrifice for keeping children safe. And we're very grateful that you um, took time today to be with us. So as Molly um, said, and as Megan and I like to leave you today, until next time, we hope
0: you can find a way to be the village for a child in foster care. Thanks for joining us.